Hello and welcome to the History of Jackson podcast. Today we're chatting with Jenny Chang, co-founder of the Pacific Atrocities Education and author of Maritas of Unit 731, Human Experimentation in the Forgotten Asian Auschwitz. Thank you for coming on to the podcast today, Jenny. I really appreciate it and looking forward to chatting to you about your book. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on here. No, no worries. You know, reading your book, I, I found it like as a student of totalitarianism, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, and it's an area of totalitarianism and authoritarian leadership that I've just never looked at before. And especially from a Western perspective as well, we don't tend to look at these kind of things. But what sparked your interest in this topic? Yeah, so my grandmother, um, had, when I was growing up, my grandma told me about World War II history. It, she lived in Hong Kong at the time, and I had never learned about it um, in, because I grew up in the United States. I really had never learned about it much, and it's not in our textbook, so I kind of ignored it. I thought she was going through her senile moment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry to put it like that, you know. Um, and then when she when she passed away, we found this uh, box of military yen and some rice coupons, and I was like, wow, there's like real documents of you know what had happened to her. Like this could have been real because she obviously has these like papers. And I don't know if you're familiar with military yen. Um, in the uh, beginning of the war, they had to force to trade in their currency to military yen. And so then in the beginning of the war, it was worth X amount of money and then inflation and hyperinflation toward the end of the war. And then by the end of the war, they are not worth anything. They're just pieces of paper. And so I thought, well, if she had actually has these items, it's probably it's probably very real what had happened to her. And so I started researching more into um, World War II in Asia. And at the time, there weren't too much about it. Um, there was Rape of Nanking uh, by Iris Chang. And then there's also um, some comfort women books, the, you know, the so-called hot topics of the Pacific Asia War. Um, and then I, and then I, uh, went into this rabbit hole, and then I've realized that um, Diane Feinstein had um, declassified a lot of the military documents in our national archives. And then I had also heard about um, the Rotten Lake Village in uh, caused by Unit 731 in Yiwu um, in China. And so then um, I went through uh, Wan Shen's work of the Rotten Lake Village, and then I also looked into the declassification, declassified documents, and um, and I thought, wow, this is very messed up. Um, if this is true, this is more fiction. I mean, this reality is more fiction than fiction, and it's very strange that this whole structure of human experimentation had happened and uh, biological attacks on soil. And there were farmers in Yiwu living with rotten legs because like it, their soil was contaminated by a biological weapon and no one had heard about it. And these farmers were like living with rotten legs for 70 years after the war. It was not until like 2014 
that they figure out how to do skin grafting. So um, because of Unit 731, there was anthrax and glanders um, put into the soil of Yiwu and, uh, and like um, other villages. Um, and so then the farmers would just go about their day farming and then they have the, uh, their legs touch some contaminated soil and then they will have rotten legs. Some legs are like rotten so bad that their limbs fall off. Um, at first, um, contaminate the skin, and then if they don't disinfect it, then the leg, then the limbs fall off. And so, like, and the soil has been contaminated for decades, and it wasn't even, yeah. And so there was this woman named Wanshin who actually brought the farmers to um, sue the Japanese government. And the court had admitted that um, Unit 731 existed. And so it's like 70 years and there's not too much about this topic. And so I thought this was, this whole thing was very fascinating because I mean, it still has like modern um, impact in the world um, that not a lot of people talk about. And yeah, <laughs> so that's a long story. So it's it's really fascinating that you've managed to go from your grandmother's story right up until modern day to find stuff that inspired you to write your book and inspired you to bring this information to the public, really. Because I, like, again, like I'd never heard of this kind of stuff that you were writing about. And I was, you know, as someone who's grown up in the West, I've learned a lot about Auschwitz and the Holocaust. But the, like some of this stuff was really shocking, like even even when I'd been taught that stuff. So. What and is? you have a history degree, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, and I have a history yeah, degree. Yeah, so if you haven't heard about it, you know, you don't expect a, a guy to yeah, know exactly. about it. Exactly, and it should be on the level of the way we teach the Holocaust. And now that you're bringing this to people, especially with your foundation, we're, we're able to bring these stories to life. But um, what, what was Unit 731? Um, it's a biological chemical uh, research institute um, founded by um, Ishishiro, a scientist who was very fascinated because he read about, um, actually Ishishiro is an interesting guy because <laughs> after, there's not, um, the more I read about him, the more I'm just like, wow, this guy had, had no ethics, no moral. Um, and he thought biological weapon would be very, very good to use because he read um, in the Geneva Protocol that, oh, this is deadly. And so he thought, wow, if it's, if Geneva Protocol is having a whole agreement to um, stop countries from using biological warfare, there must be, this must be good. This must be good stuff. And so then... <laughs> Sorry to say no, it like that. Fine. But, no, that's yeah. pretty understandable. <laughs> yeah. And so then he um he was also very into um he was born very wealthy. He was kind of a noble class. And so he was able to network and marry the um daughter of the of his uh college uh counselor and then and then yeah and move on up from there. So yeah, he was. He must have been charismatic because he had to g 
get the um get the emperor to give him that large amount of sum to start unit 731 because this is we're talking about like a huge institute at one point like if you're a scientist in japan working for um the japanese institute you have a some kind of like connection to unit 731 and it's like a huge ne huge network of like um some people call it death factory because you uh their victims never escape uh never escape the issues network and, and you mentioned within your book that the unit has its roots um in the u.s um how did how is something so crucial to ja the, the japanese war machine begin in the united states yeah um this is also interesting because he actually took a tour to mit and see other people's research and then he said well if other if they're you know japan is really falling behind in technology um because mit is doing human research or like uh, biological research so why are we doing it and so yeah that's and I think the um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, connection to Conoco was also very interesting because when Matthew Perry um, showed up to Japan, Japan was still a feudal society. And for them to open up because they had realized that, hey, China is not um, advancing technologically. And so they're now being dominated by the West. And so we need to we need to catch up, like we need to go fast. And so uh, there was a politician named Conical, um, Baron Conical, and uh, he had met with. Well, first of all, he it's very interesting because he grew up in an era where Japan is going from a feudal society to um, basically uh, Western. Uh, technological advancement so opening up to the west and he took on this tour of like visiting the western countries um and seeing how they're like and so then they're so then japan can learn and so then obviously he could speak um he was a uh, harvard educated as well and so he could speak like great english and so then um teddy had met up with him and was very impressed and had thought that every japanese can speak english like this and said wow this is japan is a very <laughs> advanced western <laughs> country <laughs> western inspired country which is very weird because like if you think about it he's totally looking at this from a Western lens. He had met one guy. He doesn't. He doesn't know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so he covered this, and so um, he brought um, because of how Baron convinced him that Japan is such a good Western country. Had like everyone. I think at one point, probably Teddy had imagined that um, Japan is even Christianized. You know, <laughs> like everyone is a Christian. Blah blah blah. He was totally looking at it from a Western lens. And so he brought Baron to go um, fundraise at Wall Street. And Wall Street bought up all these Japanese bonds to further advance their, um, I mean, because how else can you militarize yourself, your country without money? And so if you think about it, Wall Street funded Japan's military machine, which led to Japan defeating uh, Russia, right? And then eventually, Teddy Roosevelt won that 
uh, Nobel Peace Prize for giving Korea to Japan uh, in this negotiation. And then it went on to eventually Japan fighting the United States, which is in itself a very, I feel like it's the definition of irony. Oh, certainly. And, and then they definitely acquired areas uh, and again, that victory against the Russians that caused later issues, uh, which is yeah. fascinating, really, because you have that Russian war, which weakens the czars and Korea, which is its own other issue as well. Um, and then Japan took over Manchuria. Just snowballs, really, doesn't it? And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> It's very fascinating too, because like, we don't really think about Japan in the United States in this kind of context, but then the more you read into it, the more it's just, they're so involved with each other. And it's that, that interlinking uh, is really fascinating really, uh, because it's there at the beginning of UC- Unit 731 and it's there at the end. Uh, but Ishii, is that key figure for the unit 731 so mm-hmm. where does he originally choose to conduct this research and and why does he choose to research there yeah so obviously even though that he's flamboyant charismatic he can't do human experimentation in the middle of tokyo it's just bizarre he's gonna get he's gonna get caught and so he thought and then also japan had just colonized this great big huge landmass in Manchuria and he thought well let's go and so then he went on a summer trip with his BFF to Manchuria to kind of scout out and see if we can conduct human experimentation there and like have his new like fantasy um, sponsored by the government and so then he decided um, Manchuria is a perfect place because it's a Japanese colony, but it's remote enough for him to do his human experimentation. So he had he emptied out this um, soy sauce factory and then called it his own Zoma um, Institute where he was doing human experimentation. But obviously, it um, good things don't last too long. Um, it eventually <laughs> got and he actually invited his superior to come and like visit and his superior was actually very impressed with his research which just like explained to you how little they regarded human life right like his superior came and saw his research and was impressed and that's that's quite dark actually that you know they just didn't regard these people as as people and you and you give them a oh, they were given a type of name um maritas what does what does that mean and um, marutas or marutas yeah what, what, yeah. Does, what does that mean and why were these people chosen really um they're called logs because they were um it was uh, when they were building it they were asking like oh what is this um for and then someone just jokingly said, oh, this is for our newest uh, log uh, lumber factory, but they were just regarding, and then that joke stuck. Well, that dark joke. Um, And (laughs) it's very dark if you think about it. And they just kind of disregard people as people, they kind of call it as logs. And and later you see from their uh, research that 
you know, they don't call it people by name. It's kind of just like log X. So Maruta X or Maruta one. And then they'll go Maruta one to 100 during their human experimentation. And then, um, and then after 100, they'll start again from one to 100. And so you never really know how many victims were in unit 731 because they will be called for, for example, for one research, they would say Maruta one to 100, and then they will start over one to 100. And then they, their bodies are put into incinerators. And so they get cremated right after. So, and documents survive after the surrender. So we really don't know how many victims are in unit 731. And it, it seems to be that, and that shows a very efficient kind of war machine, a very efficient kind of culture that was brought together there. But what kind of, you know, this, there's a number of, huge number of people being churned through and out of this machine, but what kind of experiments were they being part of and what was happening to them? Yeah, um, there's a vivisection without. Um, any kind of painkiller really because they they thought you know any kind of medicine that would interfere would really interfere with their research there's blood being drawn until you know they're um I think at one point they were trying to figure out if they can do blood transfusion between the horse and human um they were trying to also figure out how to fix um because uh, Manchuria is a very cold place and so they were trying to learn how to do frostbites, um, how to cure frostbites. I think that was one of um, Ishii's really breaking, breaking research. Um, uh, they were also doing anthrax. Um, one of the scientists, Naito, was very, uh, would, would you call it cutting edge? Yeah. He was yeah. very innovative, yeah, <laughs> innovative, cutting-edge kind of guy, and figured out how to dissimulate um, anthrax via powder. And he later became CEO of um, a pharmaceutical company. Um, yeah, these people, these scientists who worked there were really innovative. They were really brilliant-minded, and they were paid off handsomely, even after the war. It seems to be that the Japanese, the Japanese got a lot from this kind of research, and and we did too. So, how much uh, information was uh, helped the Japanese war effort that was gained from Unit Seven Three One? So, this is a very interesting. Um, I had thought about it a lot. This question because um, there was there were moments. So. Let's go back to the Zoma structure, right? Um, so eventually, they, he got found out, even though that he wasn't too, um, he was being very secretive about it, but he wasn't too secretive about it. So then, um, and during Mid-Autumn Festival, some guards were drunk and then some prisoners broke out. And so, but then the generals were already very impressed with his um, research. And so he, they thought, well, it's working, but it's not. We need. We just need to have a bigger institute for them. Um, this is this is the Zoma thing was just too small for issue <laughs> ambition, <laughs> and so um, 
they start, they founded a thing called Pingfong Institute. And I thought that was very fascinating because like Pingfong was much bigger. They even had an anti-testing ground where Ishii can dream of like bombs to really uh, dissimulate his biological weapons. And, and he came up with these porcelain bombs for, um, for dissimulating biological weapons. And I mean, I feel like up to this day, we're still trying to figure out because um, at one point, I think in the Harbin, they were trying to develop some land and then um, someone got anthrax and glanders from just working on the ground. And so I feel like there must have been a lot more biological uh, weapons that is still not uncovered to this day. And um, if the war wasn't ended so quickly, he had also planned these bombs for California as well. And um, so, yeah. But then there were also um, some, uh, so he was very proud of his innovation in Unit 731. And then at, in some battles, he wanted to show, um, he really wanted to show off his uh, weapons. And it ended up backfiring on his own troops at one of the battles. Um, and so was it very effective? I'm not sure. Well, like on some battlegrounds, because you, he really needed to train his, his troops. And I think there was a lack of time and like miscommunication. But he definitely had invented a lot of um, things that were used in, in warfare with biological weapons. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see how not only were they pursuing a conventional war uh, with aircraft and so on, but actually expanding with this kind of research. And some of the, some of the biological weaponry that you talk about within your book is really quite haunting, but detailed research into how to disseminate these kind of biological agents to have the best impact but mm -hmm. it wasn't just one research unit uh yeah how many how many different research units were there and, and what did these different units do did they all specialize in different things yeah so he also had unit 100 which specialized in um animals um and there's a lot and then they had uh a unit that produced um, biological weapons. There's also uh, units that produce chemical weapons. And so it, he, I mean, this is millions of dollars of research that was signed on by the emperor, right? Um, some people say, oh, the emperor didn't know about this, but his seal, if you read my book, there's a document from the emperor who, who had his seal on this, on this amount of sum to give to Ishishiro. So how could he not have known that this was going on, right? Um, and so, yeah, I just thought it's, um, yeah, so it's a very huge and complex unit. It's not just unit 731. It's also producing weapons. It's also, um, because they also needed to work with Kanpei Tai to get, um, delivery of these logs on Marutas, right? 
And so that needed transportation. And so it's a whole supply chain of people. In, in both ways, people providing and providing the supplies as well. So it's, yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. And, <laughs> and for de- definitely Japan at this period has by some been characterized as totalitarian. So it's, it's very difficult to even imagine that the emperor didn't have knowledge of what was going on. No. So, you know, it's a very, it's a fascinating how it goes absolutely to the top. And these, yeah, and, this, ab- and it's uh, for people who thought like the emperor was a puppet and, and whatever. Um, I don't know if you know about Prince Konoe, who was three times prime minister in uh, wartime Japan. Yeah, he took a Sinai uh, right before uh, his trial. Um, and then he wrote a memoir and I really, uh, I found it in the, in the declassified documents as well. It's, you look under my name on Amazon, there's uh, Prince Konoe and it explains to it. And it explains in there that like maybe the emperor was not so innocent after all. It's kind of a myth that the emperor was an innocent guy who didn't know what was happening. And then we, we have the experience at the very top. And then down at the very bottom, you know, what do these these logs experience within the, the research units? You know, and you know, what 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 was happening to them? And then how long were they expected to live as well? Because we're churning through thousands, maybe millions of people. You know, how yeah. long? <laughs> uh, not very long. Like uh, your life expectancy is fairly reduced in these prison cells and because it's not just prison cells right it's um also they had enter testing station um it's like a whole ground Ishii had his own plane to drop his um porcelain bomb onto these people to figure out like what is the reaction time with anthrax and glanders and other um agents into these people and so then the logs were tied into stake um, onto this um, open air ground and Ishii and his jet or his own personal plane would just um, drop the bomb there. And then there were also people who were just, um, they would take the blood out to see how humans can live without blood. There's also pressure chamber where they test for um, humans ability to live in uh, under certain pressure for to develop airplanes um there's all kinds of experiments um so you'll be lucky if you're a log and you can live for two weeks in um Ishii's network oh christ so that's that's a dramatically decreased lifespan and no, yeah. but you also speak rather vividly about the kind of injections and the experimentations and one thing that really stuck out for me was the the, the moment where the logger had to stick his arm through the jail cell. Can you, can you let us know about that and what happened in these kind of situations? Yeah, um, I think I described it in my book uh, very vividly about, um, well, because the, this is like biological research factories. And so they're actually kept very clean and, um, whatever they need it, they just uh, write in for an order for the, uh, to take in another human body 
you know, it's, um, so it's like treat human <laughs> as not human, right? And then they, uh, are you talking about the incident where they were injected a um, Sinai or which incident are you talking uh, take, about? Because... Take, or both of them, really. Both of them, really. They're both, they're both, they're both haunting, really, to read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which ones <laughs> stuck out to you? Because I wrote so many things uh, that were so horrific. <laughs> I don't know if I can both. even say it out loud. <laughs> Uh, well, it's a history podcast. You're more than welcome to. Uh, but particularly the the taking of the blood um, with the other sold uh, with the other prisoners within the same cell. Maybe you can describe yeah. it because I don't really want to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. When they'd uh, they'd asked one of the prisoners to come and have his blood taken, he couldn't have enough. Uh, didn't have enough energy or enough power to get himself to the cell, so they'd ordered the others to take him to the to the door of the cell i just found that really quite what tip uh, typifying the experience of these people within the unit um i found it quite dark but again really informative for their and it's very replaceable um for these people and then i was also very disturbed by the fact that some of these people who were working in Unit 731, delivering human beings, blah, 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 cutting up for organs, they were just 17-year-old working for Ishii's network on the bottom of the bottom, right? And you don't think about teenagers, 17-year-olds cutting up for organs or, or like being so blinded to human suffering. So I thought that was interesting as well because that was just very disturbing to me. Well, that, that, that actually leads into my next question. You know, what was it like for the people within the unit who, who were working there um, as scientists? Well, scientists, they don't, they are just doing the research, right? They're just expecting to, because like I said before, you know, at one point, if you're working for the science, science committee or community you're working for Ishishiro um so they really are just working for to advance you can read from some of their documents that they're just they see it as blindly there's no regard of human lives um and then for the youth corp um people who actually had to do the grunt work you know delivering human bodies, cutting up organs, whatever. Um, those are the interesting ones because they were so, I would call it brainwash. They were so patriotic for their cause that I would say they sacrificed at such a young age to really work for this kind of that factory and then one of the nerves that struck um one of the thing that really struck me is like in the end of the war one of the nurse is like um who had been working at unit 731 um is like in the train you know escaping and then she said to her personally hey if, you, if anyone hear about this i'll make sure you know your family and you have no future and and, and that really struck me I mean 
at one point, you know, the staff of Unit 731, they're just staff, they're doing mundane work to them. They're already so numb to it. And then at the end of the war to have Ishii come up to you and say that must have been, must have been very uh, interesting of an experience for them. I feel and, like. e and even for Ishii to actually get personally involved in telling them as well, shows how important mm -hmm. and vital that research actually was. Mm-hmm. And, and he and Ishii's such an interesting guy because at the end of the war, he faked his own death, and uh, he had his own like fake funeral in his few in his village, and then at the CIA found him. Um, yeah, so I thought that was interesting <laughs> for for him to have done the whole show like that. Well, you've you've really gone through all the stages, haven't you? After you faked your death, there's no there's no way you can go. But um, yeah, I, you you're touching on issue in the CIA, um, and again, it brings us back to America. You know, a lot of these scientists, what happened to them after the end of the war? Um, so there was a trial in Russia for um, some of the selected scientists. Uh, but I don't think they really face any um, justice at all because it's just like the maximum sentence I think was like maybe just 10 to 12 years and then one guy committed suicide in the cell um, and then like I said uh, the guy who invented anthrax eventually became a prominent um, I mean became his executive in a pharmaceutical company some of the Unit 731 workers became prominent pro politicians. The CIA found Ishii. Ishii submitted some of his report on anthrax, which was later used in the Korean War. Um, yeah, so really, you can be, you can do quite evil in the world and do quite well in, for yourself later. And, and, and that's replicated on the, in the West as well with the same thing happening with the Nazi scientists so it's it's re it's really quite harrowing for me how much the West actually rated these scientists even even after all this horror and yeah it's quite it's quite sad as well that they managed to get away with it but and human lives are so cheap when you're reading about all these human experimentation to advance for science you just and, and there's it's not just like doing human experimentation right it's like when they're trying to conquer a place during an invasion, you're just wondering like how much is a human life worth? And it's not just like the victims at the um, death factory or human experimentation table itself. It's also when they dissimulate this kind of germ warfare onto the soil, right? Then there are like other people who get affected by this warfare by this biological warfare and also by unit 731. So then you wonder like with the kind of, um, I'll call it exponential growth, right? It's kind of exponential. And so how much, how many people were actually affected by this? And, it's, and even 70, 80 years afterwards, like you said, there were still people being affected by what Unit 731 had done in these areas. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, you, and you mentioned within your book that Ishii drops these, but, and we spoke, we've touched on it very slightly, 
that Ishii managed to drop these bombs on on places. Um, what what it wasn't only anthrax that he was dropping as well. So what what was he dropping on these places, and what places was he dropping these bombs on? Uh, anthrax and glanders um, into Zhejiang provinces. Um, yeah, it's also as a revenge. I don't know if you heard of the Doolittle air raid. Of course, you've heard about it. Um, they needed to bomb Tokyo. And so then as a revenge, uh, because Zhejiang was used as an air base. And so then um, they thought to bomb this area who that Doolittle was uh, launching airplanes from. And so again, the, U- the US, Japan, China relationship that you know, no one really talks of. And I find it, I find it fascinating as well. The how that um, how Japan had developed from nothing to something at this period. And China was still languishing behind and being punished by Japan for previous actions. And the well, use of the, be- oh, and well, the use- that, but then that oh, also goes back to the Teddy Roosevelt and Baron Conical because Conical was speaking English so well that. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt had in mind that um, they should be the Japanese, that they should be, they should hold up the Monroe Doctrine of Asia. And so then Japan dominated Asia for during that period of time. And I find it so interesting that it was Teddy Roosevelt's cousin who takes care of, I mean, who was empowered during this time. It's like their whole family. it's kind of like plutocracy if you think about it and one thing i found particularly interesting was the harvesting of um the plague from the fleas as well for something that was so so medieval in many people's minds to be used as a biological weapon was absolutely fascinating Mm -hmm. can you tell us what they did with the plague yeah um they spread the plague into these villages. And then at first, you know, one, one third of these villages would die. Um, and then if the people who don't die would also get um, anthrax and glanders. And so then they'll end up with rotten legs, um, which, okay, think about it as also a human resource kind of mentality, right? If your job was to breed fleas filled with plague i think that would be pretty awful as a job description yeah. but people did it but people did it i mean when i was reading these documents i thought it was like it was kind of bizarre to me that but did they have a choice really as a scientist or as uh people who were working i don't know it's wartime it's emergency right so i don't think people had a choice but how would you feel if you had if your job description is to be please yeah. plague <laughs> but I, d- I don't think i'd say anything to ishi so <laughs> yeah, me neither i would not no. say anything to my boss <laughs> <laughs> yeah so how much of this there's there's an ethical question here and you've mentioned the ethical question earlier um how much of this information gathered by Unity Seven Three One within the war uh, do we still use today? Um, yeah, I think so because Ford, um, Dietrich in the United States were trying to do some kind of human experimentation 
and then obviously it was stopped. And then they thought, well, we don't really need to do human experimentation if some of the research questions were already answered by Unit 731. So in exchange of, I would say, Ishii's freedom, he submitted his uh, own research uh, to the CIA when they found him. Um, and it's very fascinating because like he would say something they were asking him like oh how to dissimulate uh the germ and then he would like laugh at their question and they kind of manipulate them um i think their whole exchange was also very interesting and then you can tell by their exchanges like how manipulative is she was as a person even through like the translation and and such um so i think you know we still use it as as war in warfare today and that's Again, fascinating and harrowing that something that happened in World War Two is still is still being used today, but it's probably being used in a very different way to save people's lives as opposed to to murder people. Because you know, mm-hmm. as we as we mentioned as we mentioned earlier, the Geneva Convention kind of forbids this kind of warfare. Um, is there yeah. anything from Unit Seven Three One that really really sticks out? to you and, and was probably one of the most harrowing parts for you to research? I'm very afraid of the cold. That's why I live in California. <laughs> and so it's so fascinating to me that they would go and expose human limbs outside to figure out how to do frostbites. Um, that detail was very crazy to me because they were they just left outside um, with no no clothes on really. And then if the limbs were frozen, they cut it off to check out what's going on inside the limb as it's frozen. That was very, that was disgusting to me. Um, it still makes me very sick thinking about it. Uh, what about you? What about your um, oh, uh, vivid detail? To me, it really was the, uh, the taking of the blood through the cell uh, with his cellmates holding him up to me that was ju- that just showed the very human side of the whole thing uh, because yeah. you know I, I'm, I'm mainly a political historian so anything political I kind of go oh awesome but anything kind of I'm not a social historian in any way shape or form but things like that really stick out to me and I find fascinating and you know a lot of people think it's only um it only impacted the Chinese people, but as actually, no, they were trying to diversify their human experimentation and see how it affects like different races. And so they also gather some uh, POWs and also some Russians because Manchuria is so close to Russia to figure out how this um, human experimentation works. So I think I thought that was also interesting to me to see like they really didn't care about anyone well it's, it's as a lot of them yeah. would say it's it's wartime and all cards are off the table really aren't they because people yeah. tend to ignore uh oh, at that point the league of nations and the geneva convention and so on so thank you very much for enlightening us about your book jenny uh and now yeah. our final fun question uh we do these kind of questions for everyone who comes on the history of jackson podcast so you're based in in california uh, specifically San Francisco, if I'm right. Mm-hmm. What are your three favorite things to do in your city? 
so before the pandemic, um, <laughs> my city was a very fun place. Honestly, <laughs> no, seriously, I love going to the arcade. I love hiking. I, I like eating out. Now, some of our readers might absolutely love your book, which I do thoroughly oh, thank you. recommend to people. Um, if they want to interact with the topic more uh, and learn more about Unit 731, Japan in the War, what do you recommend that they go out and read? Um, that Factory by Harris Sheldon is also very good. Um, we also have a lot of books you can see from our website, uh, pacificatrocities.org. Uh, we talk about um, the Pacific Asia War. Um, we talk really a lot about Pacific Asia <laughs> War that no one really thought about. Um, I had never thought about the Philippines and the war. Ha have you taken a look at our Philippine selection? Yeah, yeah, you've got a really large uh, selection of stuff that's looking at other parts of Asia as well, which I find I find quite fascinating. Uh, the and I and I never really thought of Thailand as a place in Asia that had never been really colonized before. And at looking at their political strategy was also very interesting, like how they played the UK and the United States. And they would, um, during the war, they never put, uh, they would never put like um, two countries in the same event together. And so then they were able to one-on-one -on -one strategize on how to stay independent which I thought was very fascinating because Thailand is such a small country. It was like next to a lot of, you know, heavy hit um, places in World War II. And yet they were able to do their own thing. <laughs> really was, was quite something. So I'll, I'll make sure for our readers that all the links for those are in the description below or listeners as well. Um, so they can go check them out for themselves. And then if people want to find your book and you, online and they want to keep up to date with you where can they find you um well for history i think they can just go to the pacific atrocities website and yeah you can sign up for email list and i'll definitely hit up your inbox <laughs> every month <laughs> yeah and I do, I do thoroughly recommend jenny's book because it is a great read um and definitely for us as westerners it's great to get a perspective on the Pacific theatre because a lot of our education, particularly in the UK, is very uh, Eurocentric. So I thoroughly recommend reading Jenny's book. Thank you. That's okay. Well, and I'm going to read, and I'm oh. going to read your book as well because I just read the description and I thought, wow, that's very interesting. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming <laughs> on the podcast, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And yep. thank you very much for listening, guys. Really appreciate you guys listening.